everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio, featuring The Crew, where a former pro football player and a D3 all-star use strength and conditioning as an excuse to talk about anything but. Now here's John and Tex. Welcome to another episode of the Premier Podcast of Strength and Conditioning. I'm John Wellborn, and I'm joined by Mr. McQuilkin. And Mr. Carl Case. And Carl. Mr. Carl Case. Good to see you. Longtime CrossFit football, power athlete, block one coach, and gym owner of CrossFit South Bend. Let's take a look at your plate. As we mentioned, you're, you're running your high school coach. You're a small business owner, gym owner, to say the least. I mean, the amount of hours that goes into that. Sure. And keeping the folks happy. And then father to a, to a new one, man. Then Also a husband. Also a husband. Yeah, you can't forget that piece. That seems like the most important piece. Because if, uh, as a husband, oh, if you buying keep, points right now, well, if you keep, uh, no, my wife doesn't listen to us. Do you think she listens to me, uh, drone on at home? Think she wants to listen to the podcast? Because people always hit her up. They're like, you listen to your husband's podcast? She's like, no, I listen to that idiot all the time. He's got a podcast. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's it called? Um, no, like the, uh, I remember somebody said, Hey, if you can keep your wife happy, she won't drive the kids crazy and that'll make your life a lot easier. I was like, all right, that sounds like a good plan. All right. So, and you continue your training. I mean, still putting up non-rookie numbers yeah. in terms of the weight room, man. So let's get into that a little bit. How how has your training evolved in the, the fight to pull back and realize, man, there is something to minimal effective dose, focusing on sleep and adjusting my training with the knowledge that you have as a coach? Yeah, so you just kind of have to look at how your my priorities, like you said, are, are shifting. And the priorities prior to this, um, girlfriend, wife, had made the kind of the team, the business, um, but still allowed for a lot of flexibility for my life to have more hours training to, or dedicated to training. And with the arrival of the new one that was coming on, he said, things picking up, um, posed to take over the high school rugby team here soon. So just the, the responsibilities are growing without outside of the walls. And with that, I still know that training is very important uh, part of the equation. So a program like Grindstone that offers me so much flexibility to still get in, get a good bang for my buck, um, but not strap me for time. And also not just add more stress to the plate, um, especially like I said, with everything going on, there's only so much we can handle. And as you know, workouts is a stressor to do in four or five 90 minute pieces multiple times a week, just, just isn't in the cards for me right now. Um, so that's where something like grindstone has allowed me to kind of adapt to how the week is. If I have to be at home more, um, I can have the two week up two workouts. Um, if I need to, uh, if I get more open week, then I can jump into the mandatory ones and really kind of get after that week, but not have that guilt of following, uh, like feel strong and saying, okay, I get my five days in or I'm not getting the most out of this. It's kind of, I got my two. And then from there I can go from there. Do you think it's effective because you already had that base? Um, what I've observed, at least with Grindstone, where, where people are coming from other programs that they've consensually trained in, they have such a, a like a high base level of strength conditioning that like all of a sudden Grindstone becomes that really good of minimal effective dose. And also for people that are uh, involved in other sports, like uh, we got a bunch of guys doing BJJ, there's mm-hmm. boxers, uh, there's other people that are you know training for other things that are using this as a supplemental strength conditioning program. Oh, yeah, I think that that's crucial, as we know. Strength is a foundation upon which all characteristics are built. So if we spent the time really diving in and draining, uh, building that base over time, 
then what it takes to either maintain it or make small changes along the way is, is definitely takes less investment. So you, you do the upfront work and then later on when you have to change things, then you can um, still make adjustments, but still get uh, a good amount out of that program. Yeah. Well, John, I'd love to get into the origins of Grindstone. Okay. This is a cool guy. I happened to met the individual way back when we took a visit out to his, his company. So where did Grindstone originate? And I mean, who is this training program for? Uh, okay. So the uh, years ago, uh, Bill Bradley, a uh, longtime follower, longtime good friend, mentor, uh, reached out to me about doing some uh, private coaching, private training. And, uh, you know, Bill ran WJ Bradley, uh, which was a huge mortgage company with, you know, a few hundred, I mean, hundreds of, uh, of different shops around the country doing mortgages. And he had a huge processing center. And, um, you know, performance and fitness were really high on his level and mm-hmm. wanted to implement this across his company. So he ended up building a really high-end strength conditioning facility, hiring two trainers, bring him in. They were coaching all of his kids' teams, and he wanted to actually offer this service to not only his executive staff, but be able to kind of replicate this through his entire company and putting fitness and a kind of a corporate wellness program together. And his, I remember- Corporate of, performance. Yeah, corporate performance. Not corporate wellness, corporate performance. <laughs> and what was hilarious is he was going to fund this thing himself. And what was amazing- was that um, as he offered it to people, they were uh, less interested in performance and being like, well, why are we wasting money? Couldn't we just hire more people? And he was just like, oh, God. But that's a, another direction. <laughs> um, he tasked me with being the strongest CEO in America. He wanted to bench 400 pounds, uh, you know, high level of fitness. I mean, the dude's just still a fucking beast. And uh, I put together a flexible training program that I called Grindstone, Nose of the Grindstone, uh, for him that involved, you know, his training, but it was flexible based upon his travel schedule because, uh, you know, he might be gone all week, home on the weekends, might have to travel on the weekends. And so we needed a flexible training program that was based off of mandatory upper and lower and then backfilled with his days. And I think he, man, it was years ago when we first met, he made like a New Year's resolution, but he's not much of a New Year's, New Year's resolution type of guy uh, that he would not miss a training day at like a minimum of a walk a mile every single day for an entire year. And uh, so, like, even if he was sick, he would still go out and walk and train. And he basically trained for 365 days and said, hey, let me extend it. And last time I talked to him, it had been, like, years since he'd missed at least a training day. So even if he had to fly somewhere, he would get off, find a, you know, hotel gym, just go out and walk, whatever he could do. And uh, just super dedicated, consistent individual. But uh, he was really the archetype for Grindstone and uh, designing that flexible training program. And Carl introduced hitting those two mandatory. So let's explore the week a little bit. What do those two mandatory days look like, Carl? And then, John, if you want to taper in, like, what do the four recommended days look like? Um, okay, so hit, oh. hit Carl on the strength. Okay. Yeah, so we're going to have the, the two mandatory days. The mandatory A is going to be our first day, which is going to be um, our lower body focus day. And then... Driving into uh, our mantra B is going to be our upper body focus day. So we're getting that upper body um, splits between those and really diving in and getting a lot of good volume on just upper day and then the lower day. And then using the um, mandatory days to backfill a lot of it. Um, and nice thing too on those days, we, we still get a bit dose of um, athleticism within those, right? We're still doing things like box jumps or contrast training or uh, different supersets to still kind of maintain those different qualities that we've, we've worked to develop. 
Yeah, I mean, it. Um, the program, just in terms of the back end, follows uh, a lot of the principles of every other power athlete program. You know, there's involves rep maxes, you know, that idea of uh, creating mechanical tension, mechanical load, um, and then being able to force people to do something fast. So we use compensatory acceleration, uh, a lot of velocity-based stuff, a bunch of applied metrics, a lot of cross-patterning. If we do something heavy, we're going to do something dynamic, a lot of PAP work. A little French contrast. I mean, we've used blood flow restriction training. So all the interesting pieces of different programs that we've tested end up making their way into into Grindstone. Uh, right now, we're doing a whole bunch of uh, active foot stuff. So, you know, back squats with that with uh, elevated heels where we're, you know, actually putting the balls of the feet on a piece of wood or some form of elevation and then forcing people to maintain stability to work on strengthening the foot and the arch um, and then, you know, performing full range motion movements. Uh, we'll do a lot of uh, bilateral work and then accessory with, with unilaterals, uh, a lot of rotation, a lot of transverse plane, med ball work, dynamic work, um, use a little bit more dumbbell, a little bit more floor press than bench press, but we still hit some bench and some close grips, a little bit of incline. So uh, <laughs> what's cool is I have all these other different programs going and I'm able to cherry pick little cool pieces to use in grindstone because I know those two mandatory upper and lower days. Uh, you know, I mean, what would you say, Carl? They're probably legitimately 60 minutes. Like if you hammer them through yeah. maybe a little bit, like they're not going to go outside of 60. But um, like I did a consult yesterday and the guy asked me, uh, you know, how should I attack uh, each training program? And I said, dude, set a clock. And what I want you to do is I want you to be able to move through. I mean, you got to remember another element of hypertrophy is creating that metabolic distress. So you have to go out and, uh, you know, try to cut your rest sets down, try to fight through fatigue. You know, if, if we're doing accessory stuff, look at it like supersets and try to work for a pump, like really go into it and try to really attack the muscle and element and look at your conditioning. I hate fucking waiting around. I think uh, earlier in my training career, I had this idea of like resting in between sets to try to get maximal performance. Now, uh, I, I hate the idea uh, or I hate the feeling of dead space. Like if I'm going to do a movement, I want to basically transition to another one, give a short rest period and get back into it. And I found that by pushing the training, I got a better training effect. So we're able to do that. So I got those two days and then I'll alternate between some plyometrics. We use a strength. There's an aerobic conditioning day. And so I basically float between kind of an interesting template and I get to test a bunch of stuff and find different things that I like and, and use it. And uh, what's amazing too is uh, and you, you've seen this, Carl, because you know you follow Feel Strong, you follow other training programs. There's kind of like this time in your life where you're like, ah, oh, I'm gonna go to Grindstone. And unfortunately, once people get there, they're like, fuck, I should have been doing this program all along. <laughs> so I think it's viewed as kind of like, I don't have the time for the others. I'll do Grindstone, and then they get to Grindstone like Johnny Durrett's like, I don't know what I was fucking around for doing anything but Grindstone. It fits for everything I need. And I think, uh, you well, know, it, shortly ago. It was our most undervalued program. Now I would say it's our fastest growing program. Yeah. So people are finding out about it. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to keep good things a secret. And I think with. Uh, well, we, that's that's the trick. We got to tell people, hey, don't tell anybody about this program. <laughs> uh, what we're really good at here at Power Athlete is creating a, extremely cryptic, um, very like esoteric information and training programs where we have to go in extreme detail to explain it to things. And uh, Harry and I wrestle with this constantly like uh you know is it, it is it good it's great to have a great product it's bad to be like the best kept secret on the planet and i think uh there's thousands of people that know know that the training programs meet the demands and i think words getting out but i think grindstone is definitely underrepresented in the grand scheme of things yeah well i, I do want to highlight some things the the recommended days are off are pretty cool essentially how they're they're arranged 
and you get to choose your own adventure. As Carl, you brought up in the article, we're going to link up in our, our show notes here. So talk about the, the, the value you've seen as a coach in choosing your own training adventure each day. Yeah. So it, it really allows me to adapt to, like I said, what the week is, is thrown at me. Um, I can have all well, good intentions um, to have a time blocked off for uh, a workout and something pops up that it's going to take priority. And I have to uh, shift that. But just knowing within seven days at minimum, I, I got these two to get in. And from there, if I get those two in, then it's a really nice kind of say, okay, look, what's next most important for me as far as my training goals or what I need that week is the hypertrophy. Is it more the aerobic work? Um, or is it more kind of like you said, like the plyos and things like that, what's going to fit within my schedule or fit within my goals and really having to go ahead and do that. So like in the article I was talking about, um, that's when I was also working with Sam. So body comp was something I was really working on. So I'd make sure I get my two mandatories in, and I'd really try to prioritize the aerobic and then the hypertrophy days. And then as the goals shift a little bit, then I can just make that little adaptations and, and pick the um, optional ones that still fit with either the time that I have to train that week or whatever training goal I have at that time. So it's really nice to kind of, you have your foundation of, of those two days and then week to week or time period based on goals, what you, what you have available to you, you can, you can pick and choose where you go with things. And it's really nice that flexibility Whereas some other programs, like they have their set training um, track. This one can kind of take it from here to there, uh, wherever it's presenting to you. So I call it choose your own adventure. Um, when you tore your ACL, how, how many years ago was that? Which time? <laughs> uh, the first time. Uh, 2013. So when, uh, what was the surgery they did? Did they do a cadaver, middle third of patellar tendon? So that was a, uh, was a, it was a patella, patella cadaver. And then the second one was an autopatella. Okay. So mine. So then, so the second time around, they actually used your own parts. Yes. Did, uh, did you find it easier or more difficult? Like with the first time versus the second time, second time mentally you're going into it, you kind of know what to expect or the fact that they, you know, cut up your patellar tendon. Was that more difficult to come back from? Yeah. So I actually found the second one more challenging to come back from. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. If the, if the patella added a whole nother layer to it also, the second time, um, I, uh, lost a decent amount of cartilage. I had like, I think three or four grade three or four tears of my cartilage. So I had that was kind of working against me. And so I tore it the first time in 2013 then again, in 2015, 2016. So within what, like a three year time span, I had two ACL ruptures and two surgeries. So I think it's the trauma had kind of really added up from over time. And that second one, I found it all. It took a lot t longer to get back to, uh, I guess, 100% or feeling good um, and feeling confident. The, the second one, the first one, after six, eight months, like I was like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good. But I would say that second one was really the 12 to like even to the 18 months to, to really feel um, back to normal with everything. Yeah. The, uh, well, I mean, they, they have to basically destroy one joint to like fix another. You know, by taking that middle third, that allograph, you know, they're pretty much cutting through your patellar tendon and then you need that form of healing. So I, I know that that was the one I had the first out the gate. And then, um, you know, when I saw guys over the years, what's wild is they got real big into the cadaver stuff uh, and guys were coming back in like six and eight weeks. It was unbelievable. Oh. Like, like two scope holes. I'm fine. You know, because they weren't having to cut up joints. Right. And then the problem is the failure rate was so high. 
that they ended up went back to the allographs where they were cutting up the patellar tendon. So it's just, uh, it's, it's interesting in that, uh, like you almost know what to expect, which kind of makes it weird. Like my older brother, um, uh, recently ruptured his, uh, quadriceps tendon. So he's playing basketball and as he was, he jumped and came down, a guy was underneath him, his foot kind of landed funny and he popped his quadriceps tendon. Now this is the first surgery, first injury that like, I mean, my brother had injuries playing football, but like nothing that necessitated a surgery. So all of a sudden he ruptures, you know, he looks down, his kneecaps in the wrong place. They take him and have, and so he's been going through surgery. So he's like four months. And so I try to talk to him every couple of days, um, got him on like a power dot, uh, you know, like just kind of helping him a little bit with his, with his stuff. And so I'll go see him here in February and we're going to do some stuff. And, but it's, uh, it's interesting having, you know, I mean, he's in his late forties and this is his first major surgery and he comes out the gate with a ruptured quadriceps tendon. And so like, I think it like when he first got it done, he was like, you know, I'll, I'll be back in three or four months. And I told him, I was like, dude, I ruptured my patellar tendon and it took me an entire year to come back. And, uh, so I think now that he's in the fight, like I talked to him the other day, I'm like, how are you feeling about that? He's like, yeah. Um, he's like, dude, uh, I'm at four months. I can't imagine like four months, five months from now that the fact that you went to go back and play in the NFL, he's like, dude, like I don't even have full range of motion. And he was kind of going through it. He's like, I didn't have uh, an appreciation for what you were going through, uh, at the time, just cause I had never had a surgery. So I think a lot of times, uh, with athletes and, you know, coaches and whatever, having gone through that and seen kind of different things, it gives you a certain level of not empathy, but like understanding for athletes and especially for injuries. Like for me now, when I see somebody get injured, I'm like, like my stomach kind of drops for them a little bit. And then I want to, you know, help them along and be like, dude, you'll be fine. Just, you know, like, like, uh, Harry Shaw showed up, you know, he's got a, he broke his uh, collarbone and this is his first surgery. So he's nervous about going under, and, you know, what, what do I expect? And I'm like, you just got to fucking go in there and do it. I mean, you know, I mean, I know they're going to put you under like those anesthesiologists are pretty good. They don't really kill people on the table very often. Uh, so, you know, but like that, uh, like I sometimes wonder if like the injuries early on kind of create a framework for me to work from. Whereas I think of my brother having it in his late forties, like, fuck, like he's never had to rehab an injury. And I think like going through that has been pretty interesting. So, I mean, but also too, uh, I think there's so much more information and support than there was even five or 10 years ago. Um, you know, I remember, you know, calling people on the phone, calling Kelly Starrett and different people trying to figure out what, what's happening. And now, you know, there's, you know, everybody's a fucking expert on the ACL and knee injuries. So, uh, is there anything different that like looking back on like what happened, uh, that you would have done different or anything? Was it just something, was it a contact injury, you know, running in space? If you had the first time out done the allograph, cause I know there's a big failure rate with like, uh, cadavers, any, uh, like, cause I, I do this all the time. If I could go back, what I, what would I have done different? Yeah. So the first, the first one was a non-contact and when we, um, in Texas article, uh, ACL articles, he talks about like different mechanisms for ACL tears. And mine was definitely a trunk dominance. So, um, so I went to make a cut, but my trunk got really far outside my body and just created all that torque on the knee. So looking at that one, I definitely would have, um, <clears throat> wanted to work more on frontal plane and just resistance and kind of be more <clears throat> efficient within, within those to, to work on that. Cause at that time, I mean, I'd been following you guys for see, that's 2013, four or five years at that point. So it's pretty strong, pretty good. Um, so just, I think working on just be more of the frontal plane. Um, and yeah, I think the second, I think I probably would have done 
the autograph the first time now looking at that um just seeing because it was such a the second one was such a i don't say a freak occurrence um so i received a kickoff um i was just running i was just getting tackled and a guy was kind of sliding down my body and just was powering through try to run through a tackle and then there it went so it wasn't like a side blow he didn't come in and just go straight from my knees um or anything like that it was just kind of sliding down my body and trying to get through this weird, weird awkwardness so if i kind of stepped i had like a hyperventilated knee and kind of created this tension um did you know what did you so know yeah. it happened uh did you know it uh that you tore it when it happened but yeah immediately i was like this isn't good like it was a, so the first one was the characteristic just hearing the pop like a, a tree branch like snapping and like instant like down the ground pain like you know what that is and the second one having been there um i knew it wasn't good it was more but this time it was more of a, a crunching grinding feeling sound which all the cartilage i tear tore makes sense now mm. but just knowing it wasn't a good thing and just not really able to to flex or, or bend my knee and it's just kind of one of those things you're like sitting there on the ground head down just like fuck here we are <laughs> I've here we had this before and like in, you're playing mental stock in your head of like, fuck, I've been here before. When the guy was coming down your body, was there a twisting motion to tear that cartilage? That's what I'm thinking it has to be. It's kind of, cause he's coming down um, on me. So there's kind of like an unbalanced, almost like a single leg kind of power and action and kind of, and moving, just trying to resist another body. So yeah, probably. Uh, um, some, you know, I had my ACL done in 96 and um, obviously I've been e-scoped a few times, uh, since then. And it wasn't until the last time I got it scoped when the doc came in and he was like, uh, uh, I cleaned everything up. I remember, um, uh, it was, uh, Dr. Stedman came in and he's like, you know, uh, you don't have an ACL. And I was like, oh, uh, and I was like asking him, he's like, it looks like it tore a long time ago. Did anybody ever tell you that? Oh, and I was like, no. Um, he goes, do you remember, you know, you rupturing it or tearing it or whatever? Couldn't remember anything. <laughs> so I, I somewhere, uh, you know, like somewhere in like later in my career, I, I, I tore my patella or I, sorry, I tore my ACL again, never even noticed it. And then we had, who do, uh, who do we have on the, um, Wait, Tim Hewitt or Dr. Ants? No, we had Tim Hewitt on that talked about there's, you know, a third of the population is a compensator that doesn't need an ACL. A third uh, can walk, but not perform. And then, you know, a third of the population can't really do anything without an ACL. So I fit within that compensator and, uh, he said, you know, there's a lot of athletes that tear ACLs and never have surgery cause they just don't need it. And, um, but yeah, he was, it was, uh, it was interesting to come in and then think, you know, like, but then what's the health of the knee over the course of your life without an ACL. So, right. Yeah. That's crazy. I, you may think I had a, a guy I played rugby with, but six months after I tore mine, um, he injured his knee in a game. Um, and afterwards he, when he had the, the MRI, it ended up being, he had same thing. He had torn his ACL some point because there was no frame. Like they were just nubs, like the head kind of eroded away. He's like, so what he felt in that moment was a tear on the cartilage, but here he was playing pretty high level rugby and, and football um, without an ACL at some point. And it was the cartilage tear that actually like did him in or, or brought it to attention um, but yeah, I can imagine functioning without that was it. me too. Uh, in, in 96, I slipped in the grass, tore cartilage. Uh, they went in to do, to fix the cartilage and said, Hey, you know, you're going to play in this bowl game. You're going to be in and out in a few weeks. We're just going to clean up the cartilage a little bit. Went in and found out I had no ACL. 
And then I woke up in the CPM and the doctor's like, hey, uh, we had to replace your ACL. And this was shitty because this was uh, over Thanksgiving. And if they had told me, hey, we're going to replace your ACL, I would have gone to my professors and been like, hey, uh, can I take these early? Like, uh, can I, you know, something? So I wake up, patellar or uh, ACL uh, CPM machine, which is like this constant motion. And pretty much like finals is like the next week. And so there I am like, uh, you know, a week, two weeks out of surgery, you know, uh, like trying to rehab this thing. You're still kind of, you know, going through the effects of surgery. They, you know, painkillers, the whole deal. And then I'm like crutching to class trying to take these finals. And uh, like, I mean, I fucking bombed. Like, I, I think I got all C's, which kind of fucked me up in terms of like my uh, overall GPA. So that like, kept me out of like a three, six uh, academic all American was like fucking literally B's and C's across the board. And I remember being like, fuck. Uh, like you couldn't have put me in a worse situation. I like go in, oh yeah, I'll be in and out. I'll be playing. And then you wake up, you know, Hey, we well, didn't have an ACL and we decided to fix it. I'm like, you could have woken me up and at least talked to me about it or at least let me go to my professors and be like, Hey, I'm going to be fucked here for the next six months. Like, can I defer these things? Can I put them on time? Can I take them early? But that wasn't the option I got. Carl, how are you moving nowadays? Yeah, I'm, I'm moving pretty well. Um, I'm probably due for uh, a knee scope here in the next six or eight months. Um, so still, I mean, I'm still, uh, like being athletic and playing some sand volleyball with a derotational brace on, um, still interacting with the kids every now and then, but, um, I learned my lesson with, with those probably like need to pull back a little bit on that. Uh, knee, knee kind of blew up on me last year. Um, as far as kind of some swelling, but I've managed that. I got some loose bodies, but it sounds like that's kind of just the name of the game. Kind of once you get it going, that's going to happen. But outside of that, I mean, still able to do the majority of things that I want to do. Just have to be more uh, intelligent and and pick and choose. But still squat, move, jump. Um, And any day of decisions on grindstone that need to be adjusted because, I don't know, it's negative 15 and just your knee is. It's achy and fucking sore and tired and cold. You feel it's going to rain in two weeks. <laughs> at that point, you just turn like a like like go get a space heater and just aim it at your knee for about twenty minutes. Yeah, um, I just have to kind of um, really kind of just uh, so it sounds corny. Is like listen to my body. Like if, I, if it's feeling grindy or crunchy or, or or things like that, just like the range of motion isn't there that day. Just kind of being smart with just the volume or the intensity at which I'm going at and treat more just like moving, just trying to move blood and move through the system and just trying to get things going as opposed to like, ah, today's not the day to push it. Like today's the day to just kind of get in and, and move. On on that note, both of you have pretty high interoception, right? And body awareness and feel because you've been through surgeries and years of athletics. A lot of our grindstoners are using this for health, strength, movement reasons and may not have that. Like, what advice can you guys give to make the appropriate adjustment so that they don't force themselves into an unwanted ache pain injury? Um, I think a lot of people struggle with, uh, like, in the internal governor. Um, like, you know, the uh, the analogy I used to give at the Cross of Football Seminar was, like, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run the gambler sets. Uh-huh. And being able to... You know, when you start warming up, start feeling through it. And as you get underneath the bar, you're doing something like there's certain days where you're like, man, like I just feel better than others. Everything just kind of is clicking. Everything feels light. Like those are the days you push it. And then other days you get in and you might not feel it. So having that like internal governor where you know what days where you want to hammer down and what days you might want to let off the throttle a little bit. And then on those days, 
looking for other ways to challenge yourself. Like, Hey, I want to push the accessory work and really try to get a good pump. And I found for, for my knees, especially, um, a lot of the single jointed kind of like drop sets and a lot of the Bulgarian split squats where you use dumbbells, drop them and go max right body, body weight, uh, by driving a ton of blood into the, into the, uh, the quad and the you know various muscles around the leg. Um, I think that's extremely beneficial for the health of the joint. Um, I don't necessarily have any research that I can point you to in this moment, but I definitely think PhD in the NFL yeah. beating wholesale ass, right? Uh, you know, uh, you remember back in the day when I would like mention something and I get all these emails about like, Oh, can you send me that research? I'm like, I don't remember it, but, um, I definitely found that, you know, doing something heavy and adjusting, like, uh, I found too, that, um, you know, using different, uh, you know, movements on like the Kabuki bar for safety squats has been extremely beneficial. Um, and just kind of playing with, uh, not only different, you know, different bars, different movement patterns, elevating the heels, uh, will also block up the heels to try to get more, um, positive shin angle. I mean, and then, you know, doing a bunch of isometric contractions, a bunch of holds, especially in the single, uh, single jointed movements, like the bottom of the Bulgarian split squat, uh, extremely beneficial. So almost using those isometric contractions and following them up with dynamic movement. So I really think that, uh, all the different levers that we're pulling on grindstone, uh, make it just a really interesting program and something that as I'm doing my own training, you know, I, I think guys are like myself or Carl, like how do I continue to drive adaptation even when you might have something like an injury and, uh, you know, being able to hold the bottom of positions for the isometric contractions, following it up something dynamically like in the path has always worked very, very well. And I think you get a high neural response without fucking throwing yourself into the furnace and burning yourself down. Yes. And, uh, high neural that's, that's relative. So Carl's amazing, uh, shin hop to vertical jump. And then our average grindstoners, let's just think of it as a seated box jump. Both of them, very violent hip extension, one more demanding athletically or ninja roll up old school CrossFit football. Yeah. Carl, uh, heard a lot of people complaining about ninja roll ups. That's why day. I brought it up. <laughs> I, uh, uh, you know, well, this is stu- like, I love when people ask, why do we do this? This is stupid because you, because can't. you can't do it <laughs> instead of looking at it and being like, okay, Hey, think about this. You're going to start flat on your back. You're going to roll into like a dynamic X and then basically transition from that position on the ground up into a vertical jump to catch. Like that's a extremely, uh, and for our listeners, it's a less athletic version of what like Jackie Chan does where he gets knocked down on his ass and back and does some like reverse worm into a standing ready position. I remember at the old football seminar years ago, we were in uh, Santa Cruz and uh, I remember Roth was there and my wife Kate was there and I think Jocelyn Forrest and I think a few other like pretty athletic girls. And so Roth had them doing different variations of the ninja roll up, like ninja roll up to like a uh, single leg, uh, like onto one leg and then with like a jump landing in like a rotation uh, split squat. Mm-hmm. And just was throwing all these different variations to show how you could progress the ninja roll up into different planes of motion and basically using it as an example for the definition of athleticism, the ability to seamlessly, effortlessly combine primal movement patterns through space to accomplish a known or novel task. And uh, like I, the ninja roll up that we put in is just like block one, there's, or, you know, step one, or just really just like the, uh, like the first flight on a, on a, you know, on the elevator to the, you know, it's going to go to the penthouse and uh, was showing all the different variations. And I think like went through and as we talked through the different variations, uh, like you could see light bulbs going on in people's heads because they had never thought about the progression of the ninja roll up. 
And then as we started asking people to do that, all of a sudden we were like, shit, they can't even do the standard ninja roll-up. So, yeah. And for those of you guys who don't know what ninja roll-ups are, we put them into field strong. I don't throw them into grindstone very often. I'll but, just drop it in I the might. comments. Say, I, hey, <laughs> here's your one, give me, here's your workout of the day. Optional. One or seven, seven ninja roll-ups. How many rounds? That's it. So years ago, <laughs> I asked uh, one of our training partners to program me a workout. And he wrote it up on the board and it said seven sledge strikes. And I was like, how many rounds? It's like one. We're just going to do seven sledge strikes. And at that, I just fucking threw them out. <laughs> uh, we, you brought up an interesting term that I'd love to highlight for uh, if people that are new to the world of at-home strength and conditioning or, I mean, barbell in general, uh, adaptation. And then cool things I want to throw at the, the listeners, this style of conditioning, not very traditional, but you have a, a purpose behind it. The style of conditioning in grindstone, as well as metabolic distress to drive hypertrophy. Because, I mean, majority of people, that's what they're after. So those two things. Whether or not they know it or not, that's really what they're searching for. I mean, at the end of the day, like if you look at like strength and hypertrophy in terms of uh, your greatest chance of survival. I mean, we've talked about it at Nauseam on the podcast. If you look at actuary charts, the person that's able to maintain muscle mass the longest ends up living the longest. When they start seeing older people losing, you know, high volumes of muscle mass, usually followed by some fall, you know, because old people, as they lose equilibrium, tend to fall, lose muscle mass, break a hip, then all of a sudden they're bedridden, and that's kind of all she wrote. So for, like, the ability to live a long, healthy life, the person that can maintain muscle mass and strength the longest should be able to live the longest. So, I mean, that's where I get into some of like, you know, the argument on um, like uh, fasting, for example, I don't ever think you're going to starve yourself into health. I don't think you're going to starve yourself into building muscle that you, that it's very difficult to build muscle anyway. And all of a sudden now you're doing it in this extreme caloric deficit. Like I just, it, it like, like I don't understand the physiology of it. And then people are like, well, it's magic. And then they want to give you all this stuff. And it's like, ah, it's not magic. So, um, and I, you know, I, I had a guy on the, um, on the console yesterday for the annuals, um, who went on a one meal a day carnivore and, uh, dropped like 22 pounds. He was 180 and now he's 158. And they're like, his buddies are calling him like skinny. And he's like, I don't want to be the skinny guy. I want to look like I lift weights. And I'm like, well, you know, uh, one steak a day. Like maybe at best 800, 1,000, maybe 1,200 calories at most. I mean, it's pretty hard to consume 1,200 calories of steak. I mean, you got to sit down and eat. Like that's a serious deal. I mean, seven grams of protein per, you know, per ounce. And you kind of back into it with fat. Like you'd have to eat extreme. Like you'd have to eat a solid, pretty solid steak to get that 1,200. I mean, I'd, I'd fucking eat two of them if I could. Sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah. Like but Texas Roadhouse records. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but one steak a day. Like, uh, you know, my thing is if you want to put on muscle and the goal is that we got to make sure that, you know, you have adequate nutrition, uh, adequate, you know, high protein diet, you got to have a training stimulus for it, but you actually have to give yourself a chance. And, uh, you know, uh, like I think fasting works well if you're, if you're looking at a creative way to diet, we've been saying this for years, 10 plus years ago, I felt like we beat this horse down and now all of a sudden it's kind of popped back up. But, um, if you don't have self-control, and you want a fun way to get into caloric restriction, fasting makes uh, a ton of sense. And as soon as you bring it up, people like the, uh, uh, like, you know, the autophagy gremlins. But what about autophagy? Um, you know, metabolic clearing actually is much more beneficial with lifting weights and training 
and exercise than it is for starving yourself. So if you're starving yourself for autophagy, um, you're fucking doing it wrong. Go lift some weights, go exercise. Much higher metabolic clearing with exercise than there is with starving yourself. So, but if you can't caloric restrict and you know, you, you know, you need something where you need a fixed time window to eat so that you can get into caloric restriction because you fucking don't have some self-control. It makes a ton of sense, but just don't tell me it's magic. Um, a lot of times too, with training programs, yeah, they use the same kind of like, Ooh, it's magic. I mean, there's pretty solid principles for strength, you know, progressive overload. Um, you know, we use compensatory acceleration for intent. Uh, you know, there's a huge, uh, you know, we use rep maxes for mechanical tension. I mean, there's a lot of very, very clear principles for strength, for hypertrophy and how we attack it. And, um, you know, what's cool is that whenever research comes out, it's always neat to, you know, like we had, um, Antonio Mm -hmm. on the podcast, um, you know, being able to discuss it with him. And then as he's, we're going through these different elements of strength and hypertrophy to realize that these power athlete programs were built on these principles years ago. And oddly enough, the principles haven't changed. It's just people found better ways to market it. And, and as soon as we can get magic involved, now I know we're fucking cooking with gas. Magic fingers. Uh, like there's nothing magic. Like I, I wish there was like, I mean, like, like the only way to really get strong and to get jacked is put yourself in a good position by being consistent, you know, follow an intelligently laid out program that has progression, eating a, you know, high protein, you know, caloric, intelligent diet, getting adequate rest. And, um, you know, if you don't have the ability to recover, like, cause you're a new father or you have a job or all other stuff, it doesn't make sense to keep burning the candle at both ends. So we pivot into something like rhinestone where it's this minimal effective dose. And what's interesting is the guys that have come from other programs like a Jack street or a grindstone that have built this huge base to build upon transition is something into grindstone and actually continue to make really good progress. And then, you know, to the point where people are like, I don't know why I've been following this from day one. And I'm like, well, cause there were other things to do. And this is the lifestyle cycle of the athlete. Boom. Carl, anything to add for any people taking on grindstone? I would say just kind of like what John said, avoid burn, burn the candle at both ends. Like that was like one of the main reasons that you know, led, led me to, to make the shift, just kind of having the background knowledge I, I had, just knowing everything, all the inputs that I had going into things that, that something had to give and that the training had to give in some way, but still, like you said, I wanted to get the most bang for my buck out of the limited uh, and precious time that I did have. So that's where going into this, something like this grindstone has, has really helped um, accommodate my life. Um, like you said, I've, I do in-body scans um, about every other month. Still have the same muscle mass as I had before, so I'm still maintaining that. Strength numbers are about on par. And like I said, I'm not having to have that huge investment into it. So make sure you're taking care of things outside the gym, but also inside the gym and just making sure they're both aligning with your goals and your priorities. And if uh, you have a lot going on and training still a priority, but you can use Grindstone to, to help you accommodate that and make the most out of it. Boom. Sweet. Well, if you want to give, if you're not a Grindstoner and want to give it a shot, we do have a seven-day free trial. Yeah, we're easy to find. Just Power Athlete HQ backslash or just slash. Yeah. Front slash, forward slash. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Let's go slash Grindstone. Yeah. Google Power Athlete Grindstone. Easy to find. (laughs) Yes. And if you're looking for coaching, mentorship, our YouTube channel does have some Masters of Movement series to put you in the best position, not only following the right program, but executing it to the best of your abilities. Sure. Cool. Carl, if people want to, to track you and follow your progression in training and what you're doing with your athletes, where do they find you? 
Yeah, probably the easiest way is just uh, Carl Case on Instagram. That's where I'm most active on all the social media platforms. Um, and if you have any questions or reach out to me, uh, Carl at CrossFitSouthBend.com. It's another good way to get hold of me. So those are probably two of the best options. Boom. Was the Carl Case taken? <laughs> I was an early adopter, so I got, I got Carl Case. I didn't have to go with the Carl Case. Mm. Any mm. funny iterations of it? Carl Case 2. 1.0. 1.0. Well, there we have it. Guys, thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!